Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. Simon Head from Rochester in the UK, flying solo this week. Tarakar Sandu, unfortunately due to scheduling issues, all of my making is not unfortunately available for us to, uh, to do the show together this week, which I'm really quite sad and disappointed about but it is entirely my fault. So big apologies to Sandu and a big apology to everybody out there as well that you uh, you have to put up with just me this week. But we will keep this as, as swift as possible. We'll run through plenty of talking points as we look back at last week and look ahead to a packed weekend this week. We had UFC on ESPN 31 last weekend. We've got a double header of Cage Warriors action from London, England on Friday and Saturday. And then it's the big one, the UFC's final pay-per-view of the year, UFC 269, two title fights at the top of that card. It is going to be a biggie. But let's start at the beginning. UFC on ESPN 31, Jose Aldo turns back the clock again. The man has still got it, defeats Rob Font, unanimous decision, 50-45, 50-45, 49-46. Great performance to defeat Rob Font. Landslide decision on the scorecards, which is great if you're Jose Aldo. It's quite demoralizing if you're Rob Font. I thought Rob Font put on a really good performance in defeat against Aldo. The scores, while probably fair, didn't really reflect how competitive Font was through those rounds. I thought he did a great job. He just fought somebody who was just a little bit, a little bit higher level than him on fight night. And Jose Aldo proving that he is still very much a contender. This is not an aging fighter who's sliding out of contention. This is an aging fighter who is looking every bit a world-class contender at 135 pounds. The rankings, normally when we do this show, the rankings aren't already updated, but they are because I've been late this week. Aldo's up to number three in the USC's 135 pound division. The only men ahead of him, the champ, Aljamain Sterling, the interim champ, Peter Yan, and number two ranked former champ, TJ Dillashaw. And that, for me, that has to be the next fight. Aldo versus Dillashaw, former featherweight champion versus former bantamweight champion. The winner gets a crack at the current UFC undisputed bantamweight champion, which will be decided uh, eventually when Yan and Sterling uh, go in there for a rematch at some point early in 2022, uh, fitness permitting. So, for me, that's a clear cut, a clear cut piece of matchmaking to to uh, to go down. Corey Sanhagen is obviously still a factor. Rob Font, even though he lost, is still a factor. Cody Garbrandt is ranked seven in the division. Um, he's he's still knocking around, but obviously he's facing uh, a fight at flyweight this weekend. So we'd be interesting to see how he gets on with that. But he's still a factor at, at thirty-five. Um, Marab Valishvili is kind of the uh, the dark horse sort of closing in on the top contenders. He's a sort of guy that not too many of those top contenders are going to, are going to put their hand up to face him. I don't think uh, he looks like a nightmare matchup for just about anybody. So uh, there's a lot going on and 135 pounds. There's also a great bantamweight matchup on the 269 card this weekend. Pedro Munoz, Dominic Cruz, number eight versus number nine. Of course, Cruz, the former champion and Cruz has been making some headlines for himself this week. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show, but Jose Aldo, Props to him. Unbelievable performance. And I remember, I think we talked about it with Sandu on last week's show. When he first moved to Bantamweight, I was in the room where he did his first media day when he was going to make his Bantamweight debut. And he looked absolutely terrible. He had his hood up. He looked like 
Emperor Palpatine from uh, from Star Wars, and uh, he didn't look in a good way at all. And everyone was sort of looking at him going, "Is this a good idea?" Well, do you know what? He's doing bloody well at 135 pounds, and uh, it looks like a title fight might not be out of reach for uh, one of the legends of of MMA. I know John Anik on his uh, Anik and Florian podcast was talking about Aldo being part of the Mount Rushmore of mixed martial arts, and you know. I think a lot of people are, are are skewed by that 13 second KO defeat to Conor McGregor at UFC 194. But this guy's a legend. You know, he is, you just look at the man's body of work, who he's been in there with. Uh, look at the performances, look at the length of title reigns that he's had through WEC and, and UFC. And who knows, maybe there's another title reign still to come before he hangs up those four ounce gloves. But make no mistake, that man is an absolute legend and needs to be held in, the same sort of esteem as fellow countryman Anderson Silva in terms of his his abilities and his uh, his, his achievements inside the inside the Yotskan. Arguably, he should be higher. So that's that's how good the man is, and it's incredible to see him still still going strong and uh, and and doing the business, having dropped down a weight class. When I think a lot of us, myself included, wonder whether moving up to fifty five might have been better for him. But he's down at thirty five, and he's absolutely crushing it. So. Respect due to uh, to Jose Aldo. Co-main event. We talked about this leading in. Was this going to be the fight of the night? Turned out it wasn't the fight of the night in the end, but it was still a very entertaining stand-up battle. Rafael Fiziev KO's Brad Riddell. Will kick KO, no less. Third round, halfway through the round. It was kind of a tight tactical battle going through uh, the majority of that fight. Lots of uh, real striking prowess shown but not the wild back and forth slugfest that maybe some people are hoping for. But when you get two real tactical strikers in there together, you can get a bit of a chess match. And it was kind of a bit like that, but it was certainly uh, an enthralling match all the way through. And as the pace just dropped a little bit in the third round, that's when the opening started to really, really present themselves. And uh, Fiziev finding that spectacular technique to get the job done. Spinning wheel kick, finishes Riddell, extends his win streak in the UFC light division. Sorry, UFC lightweight division to five in a row. So uh, he's moving his way up the division, and he's going to be a real threat. And uh, you know, he's he's entered the uh, he's almost in the top ten. He's ranked eleventh now. He's bumped up a few places uh, from from the weekend. So now he's looking at top ten opposition, and every fight you could put him in from here on in is going to be an absolute banger. You know, someone like Rafael dos Santos would be a really interesting match uh, match for him. Dan Hooker would be a crowd pleaser, you know, um, whoever he gets next, it's going to be a lot of fun. He is must see TV and, uh, calling out Vince Vaughn. He called out Hasbulla after his previous win. He now calls out Vince Vaughn, who was in the building. And, uh, yeah, you know, he, he, he puts himself across pretty well and he's, he's got a bit of a sense of humor about him. I think a lot of people are very, very high on this guy and, and rightfully so. And, uh, loads of respect, of course, before and after the fight with Brad Riddell, uh, former training partners and teammates at, at Tiger Muay Thai. So uh, that was good to see as well. Good co-main event fight that at UFC Fight Night. Or sorry, UFC on ESPN 31. Big win for Jamal Hill. Knocks out Jimmy Crute. 48 seconds was all it needed. Sweet Dreams is his nickname, and he certainly put Jimmy Crute to sleep. A brilliant finish um, and uh, great comeback in terms of his career into, uh, uh, for Jamal Hill. Everything was going really well for him early on. 
in his career. And then he had that absolutely horrible, horrible submission loss. His arm was moving in all sorts of weird directions. Things did not look good for him. And uh, he needed to take a little bit of time away. He's recovered. He's bounced back. And uh, he is an absolute monster. I mean, that the striking is just so clean and crisp and accurate. You know, that that's the thing. There's not a lot of wasted effort there. And uh, he is going to be a serious, serious threat. He is now ranked 12th in the UFC's light heavyweight division. And uh, there's a lot of really interesting matchups in his future as well. There's a potential rematch with Paul Craig. I don't know whether he really, really wants that. I think he could probably get away with fighting someone a bit higher. Nikita Krilov's ranked ninth. Johnny Walker's ranked 10th. Volkan Ozdemir ranked 8th. All three of those are fighters who prefer to stand and throw hands. And all three of those are matchups that would really boost Jamal Hill's stock if he can get a stoppage victory against any of them. So there's some interesting stuff coming down the line for Jamal Hill. And uh, he's definitely one to look look out for in that 205 division where, you know, there's quite a lot of very experienced campaigners at 205 pounds. And uh, Jamal is one of the sort of the new breed, some of the young guns uh, leading their way up the division. Ryan Spann is in that group. Jimmy Crute is in that group, is, 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 is in that group as well. Obviously, he's going to have to bounce back from that defeat. Um, I'm talking about the class of uh, Fiziev and, and Riddell. Same again with Hill. And Croup, you know, I think they went out and had a beer together afterwards. It was certainly discussed in the post-fight press conference uh, from from Jamal Hill. So that was great to see as well. So big, big win low for him, seeing him back in the win column. And if we're talking about big wins, we have to talk about uh, talk about the carpenter. Clay Guida, uh, one of the longest serving members of the UFC roster against multiple time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion Leonardo Santos. And he gets subbed by Clay Guida. Rear naked choke second round. It wasn't a simple case of Guida being a better submission artist than Leonardo Santos. I think even Guida himself would probably admit that that is not the case. Santos is an absolute wizard on the mat. What won the fight for Guida, and he said so afterwards, was the wrestling. He wore him down. He just basically broke him during the fight. Just ground him down with the wrestling. Got into a position where he could slide the arm under the under the chin and lock up that choke. And it doesn't matter whether you're a white belt or a black belt. If you're trapped in a rear naked choke and there is no way out, you know, what do you do? What do you do? You know, there is no way out. You either, you either tap or you nap. And uh, Leonardo Santos submitted via rear naked choke second round. Huge, huge win for uh, Clay Guida. And, uh, you know, I, it's hard to not be impressed by a man still doing the business looking like a, a cross between the Tasmanian devil and Kenny G, but going out there and putting people away. Um, unbelievable stuff from him. Fight of the night went to Shane Vlismus, who defeated Mallory Martin. That was a great matchup. And performance of the night bonuses went to Rafael Fiziev, Jamal Hill, Clay Guida, all people we've mentioned. And Chris Curtis, who just keeps on doing the business outside of his own weight class. He's, really taking this UFC opportunity with both hands. That's two fights he's had at middleweight and uh, he's getting the job done. And honestly, he is absolutely doing the business. And I'm so, I'm so pleased for him because I think he should have been in the UFC already from his, his time in the contender series. Didn't get his shot. He's gone away, had wins in other promotions, 
finally has got himself into the UFC. He still isn't fighting at his optimal weight class. Give the man a fight at 170 pounds because he's had two fights at 185 and he's picked up two big, big victories. So looking forward to seeing him hopefully get the chance to settle down in his own weight class. I know he's got two wins at 85 and that might think, oh, you've got some momentum at middleweight. Why don't you carry it at middleweight? He's an undersized middleweight. And I think that eventually that might lead to him coming unstuck. Put him in his natural weight class and then we'll see the best of him. Uh, but now he's got those two wins under his belt. He's got that confidence of having those two UFC victories going out there under the UFC banner on the biggest stage in the sport and getting two stoppage victories like that. You know, the sky's the limit for him now. Let's see just how well he can do in his natural weight class. So that was UFC on ESPN 31 this past weekend. This has been a packed week for fights and for big news as well. Jake Paul versus Tommy Fury is supposed to be happening later this month. It's not happening later this month. Tommy Fury has pulled out um, with a with an illness and Jake Paul is now facing Tyron Woodley again. The rematch that Tyron wanted, he's finally going to get it. He didn't get it in initially. He got the little tattoo on his finger, but Jake Paul trolled him, basically made him look like a bit of an idiot and went off and uh, did a deal with Tommy Fury, which business-wise makes complete sense. Everything about that matchup makes sense for Jake Paul. But the fight is off. Woodley is in. Do we like this? I think given the circumstances, this is probably the best thing we could have hoped for. Uh, it's a matchup that now has a backstory. They don't have to do a huge job of selling it. We've had the first fight. I think a lot of people who know Tyron know that that wasn't the best Tyron Woodley that we could possibly have seen. But it is the sort of Tyron Woodley that we saw at the back end of his UFC career, a guy who has got all the ability in the world to go in there and knock people out, but had a problem pulling the trigger when push came to shove. And we kind of saw that against Jake Paul. You know, everyone looks at that, that one moment where Woodley almost put Jake Paul through the ropes. But what did he do after that? He didn't. He just backed away. He just Whether he was admiring his work or whether he just couldn't follow, follow in and, and take advantage, whatever it was, he didn't take advantage. And he ended up losing that fight on the scorecards. He's going to get a chance to do it again now. And uh, we've got, it's going to be a tough one. Woodley has not been training for this fight. Jake Paul has been training for a fight. He's been training for Tommy Fury. He already knows what Tyron Woodley's like, so he doesn't have to prepare massively for a huge stylistic uh, surprise. He's already been in there with Woodley. He knows, he knows what he's like. He gets a sense of his movement. He's, he's faced his power already. So really, all, all of the uh, advantages really are on Jake Paul's side, even more so than in the first fight. So Tyron Woodley's got an uphill battle here. The one thing he has in his pocket is the fact that he did not fight well in that first fight at all. And if he fights anywhere near the level that got him to the top of the UFC welterweight division, Jake Paul could be in for a rude awakening. But that would require Woodley to do something that we haven't seen him do for a, a reasonable amount of time. So let's cross our fingers and hope that we get a better Tyron Woodley in the rematch, which will then make for a better fight. And whether it's Jake Paul that gets his hand raised or Tyron Woodley that gets his hand raised, Jake Paul's next fight will be a big one. It'll either be a trilogy with Tyron or it might be Tommy Fury again. So I don't know. If you're Jake Paul, this is this is easy money. Um, you know, win, lose, draw. He's in he's in a great position. His next fight is almost, you know, you could almost write the two contracts up now. 
So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that fight goes, whether Woodley can do anything better second time round. But uh, if Woodley loses again, what does that do to his legacy as a, as a prize fighter? You know, we had his UFC career was superb until he won the belt. And then things started to sort of fall off a cliff a little bit. He started fighting very safe, fighting like a man who was trying to protect something rather than a man who was trying to take something. And uh, we never really saw the best of him since then. And a few losses and another, uh, you know, another loss or two. He's out the UFC. He's boxing a YouTuber and he's losing. If he loses to the YouTuber again, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. So we'll see how this one goes. I think if you're Tyron Woodley, your legacy as a fighter is arguably on the line here. You know, your, your reputation, which has taken a bit of a hit anyway, is uh, it's going to get some real bad damage if he loses to Jake Paul again. And he's giving Jake Paul every advantage possible going into this. He's given him he's given him the full training camp to get ready for a fight. Woodley has not been getting ready for a fight. He's staying in shape. He's you know he's a he's a professional athlete, but he's not been training to face Jake Paul at the end of this month. So we'll see how it goes. I'm looking forward to watching it. It will be a big occasion. There's some decent fights on that card. Some interesting fights on that card. Looking forward to seeing Frank Gore former NFL running back. Um, he's in action. And uh, I'm interested to see just how he goes. Um, pretty hard-nosed running back back in the day. Uh, is he as hard-nosed with a pair of boxing gloves on? We will find out. But uh, that's a little bit later on this month. Um, but we've got so much coming up this weekend. Cage Warriors, double trouble. Friday night and Saturday night, or during the day if you're over stateside, live on UFC Fight Pass. And... Uh, the fact we've got a double header of events is nice. It's great. It's the perfect lead into a big UFC pay-per-view card. But this has been far from plain sailing for the guys at Cage Warriors. Uh, a remarkable series of events actually ha happened earlier in the week. Cage Warriors president Graham Boylan uh, put out a tweet <laughs> revealing that right at the start of fight week, that the promotion's chosen hotel, their host hotel, have been requisitioned by the UK government as a, as a quarantine facility for people arriving in the UK from red list countries. So UK government has a list called the red list of uh, countries where they're considered to be countries of the maximum risk when it comes to uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. So if you come into the UK from one of those countries, you are required by law to quarantine in a government managed hotel facility for I think it's 14 days. Um, although the, all of this seems to change almost daily right now. But yeah, I believe it's it's either 10 or 14 days. And the government have just decided, because they can, that the hotel that the Cage Warriors were using, or were going to use, as their host hotel for all their fighters, all their production staff, everybody else involved in putting on the show, that their booking was basically considered null and void sorry lads you're out and uh you think when you're trying to put on a not just one show you're trying to put on two shows you've got two sets of fighters two whole fight cars worth of fighters you've got all the production crew all of that stuff as i, as I said and then you've got to rehouse them somewhere in the london area so they can get to the york hall in bethnal green and they've got to do it literally on a day's notice in order to deal with the fighter arrivals and make sure everybody's able to stay somewhere. So 
Um, I know a few of the guys on the team over at Cage Warriors, and it's a it's a small, hard working, dedicated team. And the amount of work that those guys and girls go through just to put on a show anyway is pretty formidable. Start chucking in challenges like this. It's uh it's next level stuff. Now they've done something similar insofar as they were due to host a show. This was when the pandemic hit and the UFC cancelled their March, it was March 12th show uh, at the O2. Cage Warriors were due to, due to have a show the Friday before and that was all good to go. Government guidelines came in, scrapped it, couldn't hold the event in London. Cage Warriors moved lock stock from London to Manchester and held a show in Manchester behind closed doors. They created a COVID safe environment, put on the show and that started their pandemic era of events that led to uh, holding triple headers or trilogies. Um, and uh, that has been a big, big thing for them. And speaking of the trilogy era and the pandemic era of Cage Warriors, no one has really taken better advantage or has had more of an upswing in their career than Matthew Bonner. Matthew Bonner is now the Cage Warriors middleweight champion of the world. He was 6-6-1 six, six and one, um, going into the pandemic. He's, as the pandemic struck, he lost, uh, and uh, that took him to 6-6-1. Six, six and one. Since then, he's fought four times. He's won all four, and in that most recent performance, he captured the middleweight title by submitting the hard-hitting Matthias Frederick back in June. He now takes on Frenchman Jatti Milan for the middleweight belt, looking to register his first championship defence. Incredible story. Matt the Beast Bonner. Um, he's been a, a, a regular, a regular uh, appearance, or uh, sorry, a regular stalwart, if you like, on the Cage Warriors cards over the course of the last year or year or two. And uh, he's really shown what you can do if you've got fighting talent, determination, and uh, are willing to take a chance and really go for it. And he's taken full advantage. All kudos to him. He puts his belt on the line for the first time on Friday night in the main event of Cage Warriors 131. Co-main event is also a title fight. The lightweight title has been vacated and that will now be contested by George Hardwick and Mehdi Ben Lakdar. They will go for the vacant belt at 155. So we will have two champions coming out of that event on Friday night. And then on the Saturday night, perfect warm-up for the UFC. We've got Cage Warriors 132. Dominic Wooding versus Carlos Abreu for the bantamweight belt. Wooding won the belt last time out. Superb performance from him. He is now looking to cement his place at the top of the 135-pound division in Cage Warriors. And we've got a really interesting flyweight title rematch. Sam Creasy defeated Luke Shanks when they fought earlier this year. However, there was an element of controversy. Early on in that fight, Creasy looked like he got caught in a submission and tapped very, very quickly. It was like a one-tap thing. And it was so fast and it was on the blind side of the official, uh, Dan Movahady, who was refereeing at the time. It was a real blink and you miss it moment. Go back and watch it on Fight Pass. You actually see the incident and uh, it wasn't seen. The fight continued. Creasy eventually goes on to submit Shanks and then wins what was the vacant Cage Warriors flyweight, flyweight title. However, it's since emerged that there was this controversy and what's happened since Sam Creasy said, I don't want to be a champion under those circumstances. I want to make sure that if I'm going to win the belt and he's, he's fought for it a couple of times previously, 
he wants it to be legit. He wants it to be a fair, decisive victory. So what he's done, he said, let's run it back. Let's run it back. The the result has been upheld. So it hasn't been wiped out or considered a, uh, a no contest. It's just, it, you know, the fight panned out the way it panned out. And uh, Creasy was crowned the champion. But to all intents and purposes, this is almost like a fight for a vacant title. Creasy will arrive with the belt this week. But Luke Shanks, who is a former champion, he will look to become the first ever two-time flyweight title uh, holder if he can get it done against Creasy. So we'll see how that one goes. Good sportsmanship from Creasy. Um, and I'm looking forward to see, seeing how that one pans out because it was a real back-and-forth entertaining battle in the first matchup. So that is, that's kind of your warm-up. That's your hors d'oeuvre, if you like, for this weekend. Cage Warriors 131, Friday. Cage Warriors 132, Saturday. Both of those are live for you, streaming on UFC Fight Pass. And if you're across Europe, um, they, Cage Warriors has a number of international broadcast partners. Check out all their broadcast details on cagewarriors.com. That will give you everything you need to know, as well as the full fight cards for those two events. Now, that all leads up to the big one. UFC 269, the final UFC pay-per-view of 2021. And the UFC has stacked the deck as they like to do. This is a great fight card. Gillian Robertson, Priscilla Cachoeira is the first fight of the night. Randy Costa, Tony Kelly is the second fight of the night. There's all sorts going on here. Ryan Hall, Derek Minna is a great, great matchup if you like your grappling. That will be a fascinating contest. Alex Perez, Matt Schnell is only on the early prelims as well. That could determine a future contender at 125 pounds. Erin Blanchfield takes on Miranda Maverick, who is stepping in for Macy Barber. Maverick and Barber fought earlier this year. Barber got the win, but I think a lot of people, myself included, thought that Maverick should have been given the victory there. So she steps in to Barber's shoes this weekend. If she gets a win, maybe she can steal a march on her arrival and move up that women's flyweight division. And Andre Muniz versus Eric Anders heads out the six-fight fight pass prelim card. But that's the early prelims. Let's just start with these big, big, big fights at the top of the card. Charles Oliveira, Dustin Poirier, undisputed UFC lightweight title on the line. Charlie Olives is making his first defense of that UFC 155-pound belt, of course. He won the belt against Michael Chandler. Looked like things were not going to go his way. He was getting absolutely hammered by Chandler in the first round of that fight. Somehow got to the end of the round. Came out second round, knocks out Chandler. He is now the champ. He's taking on the former interim champion, of course, Dustin Poirier. Both men are in the form of their lives right now. You look at Oliveira, nine-fight win streak. Nine-fight win streak. I think most of those are finishes as well. He is legit. He's one of these guys, you put him in the same classes as a Dustin Poirier, as a Michael Bisbing. People who have been in the UFC for years, have done the hard yards, have been in and around the championship pitcher without ever really getting their shot. Just falling a little bit short of getting their shot. He got his shot. He took it with both hands. He's the champion of the world. He takes on Poirier. Poirier, former interim champion, has wins over four former UFC champions. Five, if you include Justin Gaethje, who is an interim champion. So he has proven his worth and he's coming into this fight off the back of back-to-back -back finishes 
of Conor McGregor. And if he can get the fight or if he can win the fight on Saturday against Charles Oliveira, he's basically completed the UFC. <laughs> you know, if this was a video game, he wins this, he's completed the game. Take on the biggest star in the sport, beat him. Take on the biggest star in, a, in the sport in a rematch, beat him again. Fight for the undisputed belt, win it. Boom, job done, mic drop, off you go into the sunset, sell as much hot sauce as you like. Dustin Poirier may never need to fight again after this one. He might not need to. What's he got left to prove? But this is Dustin Poirier, isn't it? He's going to want to carry on, take on all comers and uh, represent Laf uh, Lafayette, Louisiana with pride as the UFC lightweight champion. This is, this is his career goal, and he's facing a Charles Oliveira who has never been more dangerous. The question going into this for me is, does Charles Oliveira change his fighting approach? Because his whole career, he's been looking to get somewhere. He's been looking to get a title shot. He's been looking to get the championship belt. Well, he's got that now. He's got the belt. Does his mentality change? Is he going to fight like a guy who's trying to defend something? I mentioned it earlier about Tyron Woodley and how his fighting mentality completely changed once he won the title. If Charles Oliveira's changes, he's in trouble because Dustin Poirier is a full throttle fighter. And if you're not on it, you're going to get absolutely mowed down. So if Oliveira's on his game, this is going to be an absolute barn burner. And if you ask me to sort of put my colors to the mast and pick a winner, I'm going to go with Dustin Poirier. But this is a 50-50 fight. Charles Oliveira is one of the most dangerous men on the planet. And uh, if Poirier does not mind his P's and Q's, then uh, he's going to get finished. If Charles Oliveira is not 100% on his game, he could well get finished as well. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see how this goes. This might go into the later rounds. And if it does, I think it favours Poirier, who's a little bit more familiar with the longer format. So we'll see how it goes. It's going to be a hell of a fight. And that is our main event on Saturday night for the undisputed UFC lightweight title. We have another world title fight in the co-main event. Amanda Nunes, women's bantamweight champion, women's featherweight champion, puts her bantamweight crown on the line against Juliana Pena, one of the one of the most doggedly determined contenders you could put you you could ever put in front of Amanda Nunes and someone who will offer a very different stylistic test to what we've seen Nunes take on in the past. Juliana Pena is the epitome of a phone booth fighter. She will close that distance and just smother you as swiftly as she possibly can. Standing on the standing at range and throwing strikes is not her game. She wants to close the distance. She wants to be absolutely in your face, drag you to the mat, smother you on the ground and just smash you until you either quit or until the bell rings and she wins the decision. This is going to be a really interesting fight because Juliana Pena is going to get hit. Amanda Nunes is going to land some heavy artillery on Juliana Pena. What we need to know is how good is Juliana Pena's chin. If she can somehow walk through Amanda Nunes's power and get her hands on Amanda Nunes, things might get a little bit interesting. But the big question is, it's going to be all about two things. It's going to be about Juliana Pena's chin, and it's going to be all about Amanda Nunes's footwork going backwards. If Amanda Nunes's footwork going backwards and laterally is on point, and you can bet she would have been doing a lot of work off the cage. She would have been doing a lot of work off her back, but also she would have been doing a lot of footwork. Um, lateral movement, moving off the center, 
and just not giving Pena uh, um, the opportunity to to get that double leg and take her down and punishing her for trying to make those uh, those those takedown attempts. So I'm really looking forward to this. On paper, this should be a, a routine win for Amanda Nunes, but Juliana Pena's fighting style, I think, just raises a couple of little question marks um, and it'll be interesting to see how Amanda Nunes answers those questions on fight night. I can't see anything other than an Amanda Nunes victory. I think it might not come uh, as spectacularly as perhaps we've seen in some of her other fights. I think this could be a bit of a ground out uh, affair, which is spent predominantly on the mat, but it's going to be another opportunity for Nunes to just show the world how great she is, you know, pound for pound. She should probably be number one in the sport right now. You know, she, I don't think there's anybody who has achieved the level of success that she has anywhere else. You know, she, she is absolute top of the shop and, uh, a win over Juliana Pena all but clears out that women's bantamweight division. So we'll see how that one goes. Co-main event, big, big fight at the 135-pound division. Some other good fights on this main card. Jeff Neal versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. Really interesting, this difficult build-up to a crucial matchup for Jeff Neal. Neal has been slowly and steadily moving his way out the 170-pound division uh, and is, is known for being one of the most dangerous uh, sorry, one of the most dangerous guys in the division who hasn't really got a huge amount of hype behind him. However, he was arrested for uh, D- DWI and unlawfully carrying a weapon back on Thanksgiving Day. I believe the process of dealing with that is currently ongoing and he's, he's free to fight this week. Um, he, on media Day, he said it wasn't as big of a deal as it appeared to be when it was reported. So we'll see how all that shakes out. But he's got a tough test in front of him. He's taking on Santiago Ponzinibbio. Big fight for the division. Uh, Ponzinibbio bounced back from his uh, knockout loss to Li Jingliang back in January by defeating Miguel Baeza, who himself was rising up the division. And of course, prior to that, he was on a seven-fight win streak before he had an awful lot of of health issues that stem from, I think, a staph infection initially. Um, But he's now back. I think there were some cobwebs that needed needed uh, sort of blowing off the system, if you like, or some ring rust that needed to be, uh, de- you know, needed to be dealt with when he took on Li Jingliang. And obviously he sort of dealt with that in a rather painful fashion as he got knocked out. He's bounced back since then. Now he's taken on Jeff Neal. This could be an absolute firefight. I think both men love to stand and trade. Pons Nibio, when he starts to let his hands go, is, uh, is, is, is pretty special to watch. And Neil has real legit one-punch knockout power. So, Really looking forward to that one. That one could be absolute fireworks at 170 pounds. And we're going to see fireworks at 125 as well. Two of the best strikers in the UFC flyweight division will go toe-to-toe. Kai Kara France versus Cody Garbrandt, who's looking to reinvent himself as a flyweight. Former bantamweight champion, of course. Suffered a few losses. He's now moving down to 125 pounds. His form, you take a look at it on paper, not great. He's lost four of his last five, including three losses by KO or TKO. This is his flyweight debut in the UFC. Cara France, he's one of these guys. He just needs a bit of consistency. He's alternated wins and losses through his last five fights. Super talented, but just hasn't been able to really sort of assert himself and put, you know, string a few wins together that would take him from fringe contender to legitimate championship threat. So victory over a former bantamweight world champion will certainly do 
his case, no harm whatsoever. Uh, whatsoever. Whoever wins, they're going to be right up there in that flyweight division, and there'll be talk of potential, you know, title eliminators. Or if you're Cody Garbrandt, you've got the name value. You can maybe leapfrog a few people and maybe even get yourself a title fight. So you never know. But defeat would be hugely damaging for Cody Garbrandt, given how things have gone for him at 135 of late. If he manages to get himself finished again at 125, then I think there might be some big questions asked uh, about his fighting future, potentially. I mean, he's super talented. He's still young, but he's been hit a fair few times and he's, he's, his uh, punch resistance has come into question a little bit. So I hope that the weight cut went okay. I hope that he looks good on the scale when we see him at the weigh-ins. And I hope that he's able to fight fully replenished and uh, with no ill effects of having to make that extra 10-pound cut. So we'll see how that goes. Kai Kara France, Cody Garbrandt on that main card. And the main card will kick off with a really interesting fight at bantamweight. Uh, Rowley and Piva versus Sugar Sean O'Malley. Two guys who looking to really burst into contendership at 135 pounds. Piva lost his first two fights after arriving in the UFC. Has won three in a row since then. This will be his second bout at 35, having initially joined the UFC as a flyweight. Looks all right at 35. I think he looked better at 35 than we saw from him at 25. He was pretty rangy and uh, probably pretty tight at the weight at 125 pounds. So he looks much better at 35. But he's taking on Sugar Sean O'Malley, 6-1 and one in his UFC career. That, that one, of course, was Marlon Chito Vera. Um, and it was caused by injury due to a leg kick that really sort of caused him caused him issues. So he could, almost considers himself an unbeaten fighter still. He's had back-to-back wins since then, and he's now eyeing some of the bigger names in, in, in the division. But before he can get his hands on them, he's got to get through Piver this weekend. That kicks off the pay-per-view main card, which will be live in the UK at 3 a.m. on BT Sport. Usual time for Vegas fight nights. It'll be 11.30 start or maybe even an 11 o'clock start because it's a six-fight prelim card uh, on UFC Fight Pass. It'll be a 1 a.m. start UK time on UFC Fight Pass and on BT Sport for the prelims, which I'll talk to you about in a second. And then 3 a.m. for the five-fight pay-per-view main card of UFC 269. So very quickly, four fights on the televised prelims, you've got Jordan Wright versus Bruno Silva, a middleweight. You've got Augusto Sakai versus Taito Ivasa. That'll be a banger at heavyweight. You've got Dominic Cruz versus Pedro Munoz in a great fight at bantamweight. And you've got another great fight. This time at 45, Josh Emmett and Dan Ige. Uh, two pretty underrated, but world-class featherweights. Two guys who maybe don't necessarily get the fan uh, shine but certainly have a ton of respect from within the business. Uh, they're going to go toe-to-toe in the feature preliminary bout. Need to talk about Dom Cruz, though. My goodness. If you haven't seen his Media Day interview, go and watch it because you've, uh, you've got some catching up to do. Dominic Cruz sits himself down for his, uh, his media availability, the uh, pre-fight press conference, and was asked about what it's like to, as, as, as a UFC analyst himself to have work colleagues like Michael Brisbane, like Daniel Cormier, calling his. And uh, the answer he gave was pretty surprising. He basically said that uh, he didn't really care too much for DC's an- uh, analysis. 
even going so far as to say that he mutes him and said that he doesn't do his research and he was also at pains to say that they're friends and that he gets on with him and he you know he he, he likes him a lot and all of that but the thing that that was obviously taken from this whole thing was that Cruz kind of kind of doing DC a bit dirty there and it's interesting because he's given his opinion and I don't think you can criticize someone for giving an opinion but it just seemed a little out of place to to do it in that setting um especially when there'd been no issue before you know it's not like something out of you know something out of line had been said by dc or anything like that so that then led to dc and uh, dom having a sit down a head to head interview brilliant piece of content absolutely brilliant go on daniel Cormier's youtube channel and uh, and and check it out for yourself and uh, dc just fronted up to him virtually sort of verbally and called him out on it and said you know what gives what's going on and it's the it was a fascinating exchange it was uh it was very interesting and then it got even more interesting when michael bisbing showed up um saw that there was a little bit of uh a little bit of a hullabaloo going on and uh inserted himself as as mediator and then we had three ufc analysts sort of going backwards and forwards and it was great so check out dc's video with the actual the actual vid and then go to Bisbing's YouTube channel and check out his, his version, which is sort of behind the scenes. And then a little bit from the him and DC afterwards, which was very interesting as well. But uh, yeah, remarkable stuff. Dom Cruz has never been someone to shy away from an opinion. And uh, I think as a journalist, that's great because when you ask a question, he will give you an answer and he will talk to you in very straight matter of fact terms. And I respect that. I absolutely respect that. But I also think if you've got someone who's a friend, um, a work colleague, if you have an issue with anything that they do, go to them first. If you go to them first, deal with it between the pair of you. And then after that, you want to say something. Well, that's up to you, I guess. But surely you don't make the first port of call the media you don't turn around and say, oh, yeah, I don't really care for my good friend's commentary and I mute him when he's on. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It reminds me a little bit. My oldest daughter is 10 and uh, she she's on the autistic spectrum. And one of the one of the characteristics that she sometimes has is everything can be very literal. And what that means is if you're asked an opinion or you're asked a question, she will answer that question absolutely straight up. But where things get tricky is when things like social etiquette and tact, diplomacy and things like that. Those things sometimes don't always uh, become a factor in when she's deciding what to say. And it's almost like that. It's almost like that where the fact that, you know, Dom Cruz, when he was confronted by DC about it, was like, well, what did I do wrong? What did I say that was wrong? I just told, I told the truth. I, I'm not a fan of what, of what you do. I don't think you do enough homework on your fights. And I do mute you when, when you're commentating. So from his perspective, he's telling the truth. And, you know, I'm sure he is. But by the same token, it's like, what do you stand to gain by doing that? 
you know, you, and what do you stand to lose by doing that? And thankfully, DC, while I'm sure that he was more than a little bit peed off, uh, peed off about it, he's a big boy. You know, he he uh, he's a grown up man, and you know, I think he's got a level of intelligence that means that you know he can deal with this. He's got broad shoulders, and they can have a chat about it and sort these things out. But yeah, really interesting. And um, as I say, having a daughter who who sometimes communicates in that sort of way and maybe doesn't always either understand or it's not a factor in, in a, in a, her process that sometimes, you know, you're always told growing up that always tell the truth, always tell the truth. But sometimes it doesn't always make sense to do so. Sometimes it makes sense to hold things back. Sometimes it makes sense to keep certain things to yourself or to save some things for private. And this is kind of one of those things. Um, so very interesting. What is true and what is beyond doubt is that Dominic Cruz and Pedro Munoz is an absolutely brilliant piece of matchmaking at 135 pounds. And I'm really looking forward to that one. I think Dominic Cruz, the the absolute king of footwork in the UFC against Pedro Munoz, who is an out-and-out, out-and-out brawler, a slugger, heavy-handed he's going to want to just get in there and and do some damage dominic cruz is going to have to be as slippery and as elusive as we've ever seen him and uh that'll be a really interesting stylistic matchup so top to tail this fight card is absolutely stacked everywhere you look entertaining stories entertaining matchups fights with high stakes even lower down the card and of course the two championship bouts at the very sharp end of that fight card so that is UFC 269, and I think that is pretty much all I have for you on uh, on this week's episode of the show. Apologies again that it isn't me and Sandu uh, this week. Uh, a few things I was dealing with at this end meant that our usual recording slot, uh, we couldn't fulfill that, and uh, I've had to play catch up a little bit this week. So, um, But yes, we have a show. Hopefully uh, you enjoyed what we brought you this week. And uh, fingers crossed we will both be back in front of a microphone to unpack these incredible fights on next week's show. Don't forget, you can subscribe, you can uh, rate, review, you can follow us on social media. The place to go, thebritpackmma.com. We are bringing video into the equation in the new year. We're just setting up a few studio little things at, at each end. Uh, Sandu in Toronto, me here in uh, in England. And uh, we hope to bring that to you relatively early in 2022. So if you can hop over to the YouTube channel, uh, give that a subscribe. That would be awesome. Uh, rate and review us if you're on Apple Podcasts. It used to be iTunes, didn't it? It's Apple Podcasts now. And uh, yeah, share the word on social media. You know, spread the word. Tell some of your friends about the show. And uh, fingers crossed we can take this thing to new heights in 2022. It's been really good fun. One of the best decisions I made during lockdown was to get Sandu on the on the phone and say, hey, let's bring this thing back because there's nothing I like better than getting behind a microphone and talking MMA with Sandu. Unfortunately, I'm just talking it with you guys this week rather than the pair of us, but I uh, hope you enjoyed what we brought you this week. Big fights this weekend. Get the beers in the fridge. Get the coffees in because it's going to be a late night. UFC 269 is going to be a banger. We will be back next week to unpack it all. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next week.